All right. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome, welcome. This is a brand new, fresh podcast. You know me from Unacceptable. This is kind of a sister podcast of sorts, uh, where we're going to be doing some more explicitly political stuff. Uh, so I'm Mila, and so time for these other guys to introduce themselves. Uh, I'm Stefan. What's up? <laughs> I'm Ali. You probably know me from what's my account called this week? Like in between the Epic Department. <laughs> All right, I'm the Epic Department now. For yeah. now, like who knows what it's going to be tomorrow? Yeah, yeah. Uh, when you're banned again. Just kidding. Going to happen. Just broke 20k. This is around the time when it happens. Oh really? Oh, around the follower count, not around the uh, yeah. time of year. Oh no, like time of the year, okay. it's usually like three months after I start the last one. Yeah, How many yeah. times have you been banned? <laughs> I'd like to say four, potentially five. <laughs> I can't remember which account I met you on. Um, it was a good one, it was a good one. And, uh, and yeah, funny, I mean. Funnily enough, on that one I was called Norm's Respector. Yeah, yeah, and so speaking of respecting norms, uh, we got a great interview today, and uh, we hope that you guys will enjoy it. So without further ado, we are going to introduce you to Dr. Norman Finkelstein. So we're confronted with some big news today in Palestinian politics, which is that there is another peace deal uh, that was struck between Bahrain and uh, and Israel. There's been a lot of uh, coverage already about the UAE peace deal, and uh, Dr. Finkelstein, you had previously commented on that. So we were uh, looking forward to getting your opinion. We were wondering what your thoughts are on this uh, somewhat sort of new wave of deals between the Gulf states and with Israel. Um, there are two aspects to it. The first aspect is there's an election coming up in November in the United States and the, United, and the Trump administration would like to show something for its diplomacy. It, uh, it's what, what was ballyhooed for three years as the deal of the century uh, died probably before it was born. It was an aborted fetus. Uh, and that was an embarrassment for the Trump administration. In particular, he himself, Donald Trump, and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. And so they sought to recoup their losses by what anybody would do under the subject, under the circumstances, which is change the subject. So the deal of the century, which had been ballyhooed for three years, was deep six. And then these new developments, diplomatic developments, came into play. Uh, in the same way, uh, Netanyahu, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu had a campaign in the platform of annexation. And it was a very high profile uh, commitment that he made, promise that he had made. And it became clear quite quick, quickly that he couldn't follow through 
on his promise. Probably, my guess is the two main considerations were the pressure from the Europeans, in particular from Germany, and also because of developments or ongoing litigation in the International Criminal Court. Uh, I don't want to go into the details now because they're fairly complicated, but if he had annexed any part of the West Bank, it was pretty clear that the ICC would have been forced against its preference to investigate Israel for war crimes. And so Netanyahu also had to change the subject. And so they changed the subject to these huge diplomatic victories were these so-called Gulf states. And they're not states, they're just family-owned gas stations. Uh, these so-called Gulf states um, brokered deals, diplomatic relations with Israel. Um, there, there are a couple of ways to look at it. There is some significance to it. I, I don't want to deny that. There had been a kind of red line to the Palestinian cause uh, so far as it concerned in the Arab world. And the red line was there would be no diplomatic relations with Israel until and unless the Palestine question had found a satisfactory resolution. Now that had already been breached, that red line with Egypt in 1979, and then with Jordan, if my memory is right, Jordan was, I guess, 1997, I can't remember, 97 or 98, they, had a, they signed a peace uh, treaty with Israel. So um, nonetheless, it's true, a red line had been breached. And these states, which have been collaborating with Israel all along, um, they were now formally recognizing it and basically um, deeming the Palestinian cause an irrelevance, a nuisance, a meaningless sideshow. Uh, and there is some, I suppose, significance to that. Uh, the bigger significance is what it tells you about the Palestinian cause. The cause is dead. Now, there are many reasons it's dead which were outside the control of the Palestinians. Um, and there's no point in reciting, because most of you listeners will know, all the cards that were stacked against them. But they have within their power the possibility to preserve one card. And that was the moral authority of the cause. The cause of Palestine obviously never had in its arsenal natural resources, a potentially powerful economy, a vast demographic weight, a 
or the potential to be a uh, formidable military force. Now, the Palestinian cause had a peculiar, a particular quality to it, which made it unusual on the stage of world politics. And that was its symbolic power. By the mere virtue of what it stood for in the Arab world, the fact that the idea of Palestine could galvanize the popular masses in the Arab world, it gave it formidable power. If you look at, for example, the negotiations between 1977 and 79, uh, presided over by Jimmy Carter, um, Anwar Sadat was desperate to sign a deal with Israel um, and to get into the orbit of the United States. He was desperate to, but he was also desperate to have some kind of political cover. Because if he knew that if he signed a deal and Palestinians got nothing out of the deal, he would be politically isolated in the Arab world. And as it turned out, it sealed his fate. And that was actually a very real worry from the very beginning that he might be assassinated if he strikes a separate deal with Israel. Uh, that Palestinian cause, if you, if you look when Carter and his top diplomats visited the Saudis during that era, because Carter wanted to get the Saudis on board support, uh, supporting the Egyptian-Israeli treaty, the Saudis said, you got to give something to the Palestinians. You got to do something for the Palestinians. You can't just sign a separate treaty and the Palestinians get nothing. And he refused to go along, even though he liked Carter, and Carter obviously liked him. He couldn't do it because that cause, it carried this kind of symbolic weight, the symbolic power. But now the cause is completely bankrupt. It's just a tin pot dictator surrounded by sub-mediocrities, uh, corrupt collaborators, the most wretched sorts of people. The cause inspires exactly zero in anybody anymore except for a handful of true believers with the BDS movement. Aside from that, the cause is dead. Now, I want to emphasize, I don't blame them entirely. There are many things that were stacked against them. For example, the Palestine cause ceased to have its resonance because humanitarian crises emerged all over the Arab world, next to which the Palestine cause didn't look so terrible. Is it as bad as Yemen? Maybe, maybe not. Is it as bad as Syria? Maybe, maybe not. 
Is it as bad as uh, Iraq? Maybe, maybe not. Is it as bad as Libya? Well, you go down the list. So the cause in part was inspirational and galvanized the Arab world because of the magnitude and the exceptional nature of the tragedy that had been visited and perpetuated against the Palestinians. It's no longer the case. To put it simply, every other state has enough problems of their own. So it's become every state for itself, not every man for himself, but every state for itself. So those factors were outside its control. And I can list many, many other factors that were outside its control. But there was one factor, you know, through the worst parts of apartheid, the worst years of apartheid, say when the South African pub, uh, government inflicted the 1984, the state of emergency. And that was pretty brutal. But the South African cause, even through its most painful and defensive years, never lost its moral authority. Nelson Mandela was in jail in Robbins Island. It was incidentally a choice by Mandela. The South African government repeatedly told him, all, we, all you have to do is renounce armed struggle and we'll let you out of jail. Just renounce armed struggle. That's it. And Mandela said, I'm staying in jail. No, because we have a right to armed struggle until we win one, or one person, one vote. We have that right to armed struggle, so I'm not going to renounce it. So even in the worst periods of apartheid, when the resistance movement was definitely on the defensive, it still retained its moral authority. Who's going to rally behind the Palestinian Authority? You know, these people they are so blind to their corruption. They attack the UAE and now Bahrain for recognizing Israel. They recognized Israel 27 years ago. <laughs> the UAE is 27 years behind them. Mm -hmm. They say that the UAE is collaborating with Israel. Their security forces have collaborated with Israel for 27 years. And literally, we're not talking about hyperbole. We're not talking about poetry. And literally torturing Palestinians who are resisting the occupation, cheering Israel each time Israel attacks Gaza and inflicts massive death and destruction on Gaza. They cheer Israel because they want to unseat their rival, Hamas. So they want Israel to inflict a military defeat. Never mind that hundreds of children are killed. Never mind that thousands of homes are pulverized. They don't care. 
And then they criticize the UAE. I mean, this is the most corrupt gang of thugs on God's earth. And then they get indignant at the UAE. No, it's ridiculous. And they lost all the moral authority. The cause is dead. Now that doesn't mean it might rise again. I don't know. My guess is it will at some point. It will turn into just a very conventional civil rights struggle, uh, a minority struggling for its rights to vote and so forth. You know, probably it's going to evolve into that. Not anytime soon, uh, but it probably will evolve into that. And for the moment, the cause is dead. And the fact that the UAE and Bahrain feel free now to ignore it is proof positive that it's dead. So uh, just I, I want to latch on to, uh, uh, given this diagnosis of the sort of uh, death of the moral authority of uh, Palestine, uh, Palestinian authority. Um, I'm curious about sort of to hear more about what you have to say about, uh, as you put it, the true believer, the handful of true believers in the BDS movement. So, you know, uh, I, I could definitely speak for at least Mila and I that when we were undergraduates, uh, BDS was this issue that completely rocked the campus politics uh, mm -hmm. when we were there. And uh, I mean, I, uh, I, I think I, I, I would say I'm a bit ambivalent about uh, it's, I mean, definitely a, a, as a matter of campus politics, I'm a bit ambivalent about BDS, but uh, there's definitely a lack of reflection about uh, the actual, uh, you know, political actors that are being supported, uh, you know, and you're, in your view, the most corrupt group of thugs on the planet. So I wonder uh, if you could just tell us a bit more about what you, I mean, I mean, basically what you think. Look, uh, we're, going to have to, we're going to have disagreements and disagreement is fine, but I'm just warning you in advance. BDS did not rock the college campuses. The Palestine cause rocked the college campuses. Okay. I spoke before BDS came along, I spoke at probably around 40 campuses a year. I would get audiences typically in the hundreds and often over a thousand. Wherever I spoke, long before BDS. Right. What BDS did was, you can use the terminology you want. And actually, both terms are correct. BDS appeared to give the Palestine cause a concrete agenda. People had tired of just lectures, speakers, educational uh, events. They wanted something concrete. And BDS seemed like something concrete, especially as it claimed to be in the trajectory of the anti-apartheid sanctions movement. So it, it seemed or appeared to give the movement something concrete to aspire to, a set of objectives. The second thing it did, and I'm not saying they're contradictory. Right. The second thing it did is it hijacked the movement. 
There was a movement before BDS. Life didn't begin with BDS. Right. It wasn't, you know, God created the world in six days, and the seventh day he created BDS. No, there was life before BDS. I was part of it. I was involved in it. It became, uh, it's always been, in my recollection, it's been the campus issue for probably since the 1990s, since the 1990s. Um, what BDS did is it hijacked the movement. The folks who lead it tend to be these authoritarian megalomaniacs who made it a litmus test. Either you supported BDS or you were not part of the movement. Um, and then it became, in my opinion, and I've said it many times, and I don't recoil from saying it, it became a cult. Uh, so I don't think it made the movement. Actually, I think it proved to be very divisive by setting up this litmus test and writing off a large number of people who could have been won over to more basic and compelling demands. Um, um, and it also created, unfortunately, it handed the other side uh, on a silver platter. It handed to them a case to make against the Palestine movement. Because what the other side kept saying is, BDS is behind everything. Anything that anybody said about Palestine, it's, a, it's BDS. BDS is the wire puller. They're behind everything. The Palestine cause is BDS. And then they said BDS refuses to recognize Israel. BDS wants to destroy Israel. BDS this and that. They made their case much easier. Now, I want to be clear, just as I was in the case of the Palestine's death as a cause. Once the other side became very aggressive, it was going to be a problem. No question in my mind about it. They started, they uh, decided, we're never going to win the battle for public opinion anymore, the Israel side. So we're going to just go after everybody. We're going to try, we're going to direct in universities that they're going to lose their alumni contributions. We're going to drag in lawyers to keep suing this person and that person. Uh, it was going to be a, a tough battle, no question in my mind about it. But they made the battle easier because they said, they kept, uh, the other side kept saying they don't recognize Israel. They want to destroy Israel. And frankly, factually, that was true. You know, factually, uh, it was true. They wanted to get rid of Israel. Now, that's a legitimate goal. I'm not saying you're not entitled to that goal. But you have to ask yourself the question, is that goal likely to win over large numbers of people? Whereas so, if, you, if you said we stand by international law, the law says Israel is a state, the law also says Palestinians have the right to self-determination. They have a right to a state. The law also says the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza, are occupied Palestinian territory. That's what the UN has said. 
that's with the General Assembly and the uh, Security Council in November 2016, and the International Court of Justice and human rights organizations like Amnesty and Human Rights Watch, they all say it. And we're just supporting the law. That's all we're doing. But BDS wasn't just supporting the law because the law says Israel is a state. Does, Israel, does BDS say that? Is that in their platform? No. It just made it easier. So when you say that um, they could have won, there are people that could have been won over. Um, I'm curious who these these people are that, that you think could have been won over. Uh, there's been a large amount of alienation among young Jews against Israel. Yeah, okay. I, was, and I was about to say me. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a disgusting place. It resembles South Africa during the apartheid era. It resembles the American South in the pre-civil rights era. These are mean people. They're racists. They're Jewish supremacists. It's an ugly place. And young American Jews, that's just not their thing. Of course, there's a group, uh, Jewish supremacist, young American Jews, but in general, they're liberal, um, uh, tend to be Democratic Party, like Obama, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so Israel is an embarrassment. But there are limits to how embarrassed you're going to be. Are they are they willing in the in the in the, in the uh, knowledge of what Israel has become? Are they willing to agree to dismantling the state? No, there are limits. You can win them over to ending the occupation. Absolutely, you could win them over. Ending the blockade of Gaza, of course, you could win them over. Uh, calling for Israel's dismantlement? No, I don't think that's on the. Uh, political agenda. So uh, I'm, I'm happy that you brought this uh, sort of uh, demographic of young Jews up because I actually had a question about, uh, you know, talking with, the, uh, you know, I I'm someone who has, uh, you know, made a lot of friends of this, you know, part of this democrat uh, demographic, uh, you know, in my university years. And uh, I, I think that, you know, we can agree probably, you know, the problem of anti-Semitism in the world today is, you know, it's not nearly comparable to the crisis of displacement and genocide uh, that's going on in Palestine. And it's, you know, the disadvantages that you face as a Jewish person are also likely not, not very comparable to the disadvantages some other visible minorities face. No, uh, just, what's your name? I'm Stefan. Excuse me? Stefan. Stefan. I, I want to just, I recognize I have to give you the chance to speak and I have to respect you. Um, well, I want to just stop you briefly there. Sure. There are no disadvantages that Jews face in the United States or the UK or in Canada. In fact, all they face are advantages. Yeah. Let's be clear about this. When I grew up, discrimination men, prejudice men, anti-Semitism meant, what it meant was discrimination in housing, discrimination in trying to get a job, discrimination in trying to get into a school of higher education, maybe less so, but discrimination in getting into a country club, okay? Yeah. 
Did you face any kind of discrimination now? No, of course not. No, I, I, I'm in agreement. Not only did they not face discrimination, in many places, being a Jew gets you in. Jews have a reputation for being smart. Jews happen to occupy key positions in the legal field, in publishing, in the arts. And Jews are like anyone else. They can be clannish. I'm not saying only Jews are clannish, but they can be clannish. If you go to a law firm, the assumption is, if you're Jewish and you have an interview for a law firm, you have to prove in the interview that you're stupid because you come in with the assumption that you're smart. If you're black and you go into the law firm, you have to prove that you're smart because the assumption is that you're stupid. Every, every which way in our society today, here in the UK, in Canada, everything is either neutral as regards Jews or it's to their disadvantage, excuse me, to their advantage. You take, let's take the most standard measurement. The standard measurement in sociology of when a group has completely assimilated. When a group has completely assimilated, the uh, standard is intermarriage, where you're not only legally accepted, but you're accepted in the privacy and the personalness of the family. That's total assimilation. So what do we have in the United States? Chelsea Clinton, she is the apple of Bill and Hillary's eye, their only child. They love Chelsea. They love Chelsea to death. Who does Chelsea marry? A Jew. Donald Trump, he loves Ivanka. She's the apple of his eye. She love, he loves to death Ivanka. Who does Maybe Ivanka a marry? A Jew, Jared. I pity her for marrying an, an imbecile, but okay, that's, that's love, that's her choice, even though I doubt it's love. Uh, she marries Jared. Mary Tyler Moore, way before your time. She was America's yeah. sweetheart. Everyone loves Mary, Mary Tyler Moore. Who does she marry? A Jewish doctor. There's no discrimination against Jews. Everything you talk about, you say, oh, there's discrimination. Why? Because people think Jews talk too much about the Holocaust. You know, they take polls. They ask, do you think Jews talk too much about the Holocaust? Uh, and people say, yeah, I think they talk too much about the Holocaust. Well, I happen to think, I said, that's proof of anti-Semitism. Yeah, I'm serious. That's called proof of anti-Semitism. I'm thinking to myself, if you don't think Jews talk too much about the Holocaust, then you're certifiably insane. Then they say another proof, another proof that there's anti-Semitism. They ask the question, do you think Jews think they're smarter than other people? And a lot of large members say, yeah, I think Jews think they're smarter than other people. Now listen to this. Are you ready for this, Stefan? Mila, yeah, sure. Ali. What? Ali. Spell it. A-L-I. Oh, Ali. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Ready for this? Okay. I'm going to be 67 years old. 
In my 67 years in this planet, I have never met a Jew who didn't think he was smarter than non-Jews. I have never met one. I'll tell you, even I think Jews are smarter. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. You know, so that must mean every Jew is an anti-Semite. Well, uh, Ali, Ali and I are, are Lebanese, and, and we, 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 we think that, I, I think, well, I think that people from, like, every culture seems to think highly of their cultural no, group, no, just because no, there's no, familiarity. No, but. no, I, yeah, I think, no, I think uh, Dr. Finkelstein is right on this one. No, 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 no. You The Lebanese are up there. Jews. What? The Lebanese are up there. Like, you always hear us endlessly talking about, like, I don't know, Carlos Slim or God knows like which Lebanese person makes it like yeah. to the extent where like even at the last company I worked at, they were like, oh, we got two Lebanese guys now. We're starting to go up in the world. Yeah. And well, <laughs> It even got me like thinking like it'd be, I mean, like credit to the Jewish community, like they look out for themselves and maybe we should try to establish like a similar network for us. Listen, I'm not, uh, there are aspects of Jewish culture, which I happen to I think are good. Jews are on time. They're punctual. I, I think that's, an, uh, that's a good thing, frankly. When you go on the subway now in New York, the only people reading books now, the only people are Orthodox Jews. They're reading the Talmud. They're the only ones reading. I, I, I respect that. Well, Stefan's the only PhD student out of all of us, so <laughs> it was probably true. <laughs> So, okay, but, but just but to backtrack. I'm, 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 I'm trying to make two points. Okay. Point number one, by every common measure, there is exactly zero anti-Semitism in the United States. By common measure, I mean the standards we used to use. Access to housing, access to jobs, access to schools. That's what we cared about. That was anti-Semitism. By every common measure, not only do we have access, we have more than access. For law firms, medical profession, you go into a hospital, you interview, interview for a job with an administrator. If the administrator sees you're Jewish, you got a leg up. You got a leg up. My nephew was lucky. God was born, he was born under a lucky star. You know why? His father was Jewish and his mother's Chinese. Can you imagine? He's like, one, he's one of the sweepstakes. He goes in for a job interview. Oh, you look like you have an interesting background. What's your family background? Well, my father's Jewish, my mother's Chinese. You're hired. You don't see that combination that You're often. You're hired. I'm dead serious. You're hired. Okay, so I, I'm, I'm actually in agreement with your assessment. I just want to make that clear. Uh, what I was asking, though, is, is that uh, there is this... Uh, so, it, and it may just operate purely on the level of rhetoric. As you mentioned, there are all these uh, material indicators that suggest that, you know, Jews do not face any disadvantage whatsoever. That was the point that you just made. Um, but uh, so in conversation with this sort of group of Jews that are more sympathetic to Israel that you come across often, the sort of, you know, Obama loving Jews, so to speak, um, uh, it's, I find it's very common uh, that, you know, if you if you're to have a conversation with these kind of people and criticism of Israel, uh, they ha there is a sort of deflection tactic, which is to 
cite the rise of the far right in Europe and the United States as indicating a, a return of anti-Semitism. And that is sort of a, a, a way of deflecting the need to think critically about Israel. So do you have any take on this? I mean, you've sort of already explained it to an extent. You've, you know, flat out denied that there is there anti-Semitism. Is a, there is definitely a, a rise of the far right. And Israel's part of it. <laughs> And right, Israel, exactly, exactly. And Israel's among the most admired states by the far right, whether it's Bolsonaro in Brazil, Orban in Hungary, uh, Modi in India, they love Israel. That's, yeah, you, you, people often neglect that. Like, I think that's the thing. Like, a lot of the far right politicians, especially in Hungary, for example, and Netanyahu, they're on the same page of let's get as many Jewish people out of here as possible and into Israel. I don't think, you know, it's a very, I, I, I don't want to go into it now, but it's actually a kind of strange phenomenon, which you probably wouldn't understand because you don't know what it was like for Jews before Israel uh, emerged. They love Israel whether it's Bolsonaro, Modi, Duterte in the Philippines, Orban in Hungary, they love Israel, but they don't think it's Jewish. You see, for Jew used to conjure a particular type, a feeble, weak, cerebral uh, type. Israel is a white, also leftist, also leftist, you know? Israel is a far-right, racist, Jewish, white supremacist, um, militarist state. They don't see it as Jewish. They see it as in the image of their own ideology. But, but it's also true. There are elements of the anti-Semitic, I don't want to call it stereotype, the anti-Semitic image that they do cling to. They think that Jews control the world, the far right. They think Jews are very rich. And they think that Israel is the entry point to the White House. So for those reasons as well, they cling and admire or want to be in the good graces of the state of Israel. So it is a combination. I, have, I recognize that. But the overarching fact is they don't see Israel as Jewish. I have to say neither did my parents because my parents were from Eastern Europe they had an image of what a Jew was. And when someone like Moshe Dayan comes along with the pirate's patch. Yeah, oh my God, the, military, the Bond villain. But then it's not a Jew. For us, you know what a Jew was, for better or for worse? A Jew was Woody Allen. No, it's true. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's a Jew. Larry Horn-rimmed gla horn glasses a bit nebishy, nebishy means nerdy, yeah. smart, talented, kind of a weakling, 
That's for us a Jew. It's not these Israeli generals. That's not Jewish. So it can be the case that these leaders elsewhere are anti-Semitic and feeling no contradiction whatsoever, also deeply admiring and respecting Israel. Both are possible because they don't see Israel as Jewish, except in those respects I mentioned, the power, the money, and the entree to the White House. And in that case, it just becomes another opportunity. Yeah, it's another opportunity. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Yeah, I I mean, well, I wanted to, to and unless anyone else has any other points, I, I wanted to also get to talking about like free speech and, and stuff like that, I guess. I, I was wondering, like, a lot, you still see like a lot of, a lot of the politicians still talk about, like both Democrat and Republican, still talk about like the two-state solution as the goal. But every time I look at like a map of the West Bank, where it basically looks like Swiss cheese, it's a little hard to see how exactly that works. Like you think they should still focus on trying to get the two-state solution or should the goal be like recognize Israel and then within that state, then you try to, I guess, like fight for equality in the form of a civil rights movement. Ali, I'm a realist. I don't build castles in the air. There's no cause now. One state's not on the agenda. Two states is not on the agenda. No state's on the agenda. If you want to focus on something, then focus on something like lifting the blockade of Gaza. But if you, if you want to talk about solutions now, there's nothing on the agenda. Nobody gives a darn about the Palestinians anymore. The course is dead. And I'm not going to speculate. If a mass movement emerges, and I'll see what the balance of power is based on the demands that that mass movement puts forth. But right now, there's no movement. There's no resistance. There's just despair combined with every man for himself and every woman for herself. People are trying to make a life for themselves individually. There's no collective action. So I don't see the point. You know, you can always, you can always tell when a cause, when the demand of a cause is uh, meaningless. You know how you could tell? when the New York Times starts discussing the cause. No, I'm very serious. That's the best indicator. So in the last couple of months, what has the New York Times been discussing? Number one, reparations to black people. The moment the Times starts talking about reparations, you know, totally meaningless, never gonna happen. Because if they were serious, they wouldn't discuss it. And number two, they'll print an op-ed by Peter Beinart calling for goodbye to Jewish state, time for one state. The moment they print that, I remember the Times it is just old-fashioned Jewish supremacists. It's no goodbye to a Jewish state as far as they're concerned. But they'll discuss it when it's just a parlor game. Let's sit around, you know, at Martha's Vineyard, or let's sit around at the Hamptons, and let's have a, a, a soiree 
uh, or a dinner party, I want to talk about one state because it's meaningless. So I'm not going to partake of that. I've thought about, I've written on, I've discussed the question of one state or two states when I thought it was a viable goal. But I'm not going to discuss it now because it's totally irrelevant. No, that's, uh, that actually does. What you mentioned, like regarding the New York Times, it kind of reminds me of uh, the United States, like back during the 19th century, like late 19th century, where it wasn't until like after the Native American tribes had been completely destroyed right. and devoid of any power. That's when they started talking about their bravery and naming things and other people after them. Like well, actually much later, you'll be surprised it was not until the 1970s that there was first recognition of what had been done to the Native Americans. I can even tell you the name of the Hollywood film. It was a, a film with an actor named Dustin Hoffman. It was called Little Big Men. And it was the first time there was any public recognition given to what happened to the Native Americans. Same thing with um, the book Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. It all started around the 70s. When exactly what you said, when the cause was dead, then there was, why not talk about it and beat your heart and show your anguish and pain because it's costless. It's just there, it's just show. There's, there's gonna be a lot of that with Yemen one day possibly sooner than later. Like a lot of people wondering, oh, why didn't someone do something? Yemen was so tragic. I see that with Syria too, I think, you know, like it's kind of become this like hipster left pet issue um, with people saying, well, if only people cared about it enough, then it would just, all their problems would go away. Um, so I think definitely that is a correct diagnosis. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit because as, as Stefan mentioned, he and I went to McGill University and there, I felt like there was a controversy every week about Palestine to the point where it made national news. Um, a student union member at our school made a, a tweet uh, about uh, punching a Zionist and that made all the newspapers for the whole country and uh, there's just a general sort of fear, not only in that front, but just in speaking about these issues uh, candidly. And there's been a lot of discussions right now. There's a letter that came out from Harper's Magazine that was calling for free speech and for like open discussion. But a lot of the people that signed the letter were people who supported censoring Palestinian academics. Um, or censoring people who are at the forefront of that debate. So I, I wonder what, and I, I'm sure you're no stranger to this as well, so I, I wonder what your thoughts are on this new uh, free speech discourse and, uh, and just this whole no platforming discourse and stuff like that. Well, I'm gonna make a suggestion. I've already gone on a long time and I have got to do work tonight. It happens, the work I'm doing is I'm writing a book titled Academic, Pro Academic Freedom and Cancel Culture. Okay, perfect. So, oh, wow. How Love about it. if we, uh, and the point of departure is that Harper's letter. 
Okay, um, that sounds perfect. So I've already written the two chapters in Academic Freedom. Uh, the very long introduction, which is supposed to be 3,000 words, but it's now over 25,000 words, is on the whole cancel culture debate. Um, so my recommendation would be, we postpone this discussion. I will give you what I wrote on academic freedom. And then depending on when we uh, meet again, I'll give you what I've written on the cancel culture issue. Um, yeah. yeah that's that will, uh, I'm, I'm getting very exhausted from it, frankly. I've been working on it for a couple of months and my mind is just shocked from it. Uh, I have one very long section to do on the cult of Barack Obama and how, how you explain it and what's going on there. So, and that will take me time, unfortunately, because he's probably the most, I guess he's the most platitudinous person I've ever encountered. He, he is. Like just, just a few weeks ago, he torpedoed the entire NBA strike with one phone call. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh. He did that? He did that. And LeBron James, like after all the NBA players went on strike, LeBron James announced that they received a phone call from President Barack Obama. And as a result, they will be returning to play in exchange for turning the stadiums or arenas into voting centers or something. So, yeah. Is, he's untouchable. And that's one of the issues that has to be, I think, addressed how that untouchability came to pass. Yeah. Um, so that's my suggestion. And uh, is there, are you amenable to that? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because I think I've already really gone time. on for what? I, we went on already for like an hour. About 45 minutes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And people yeah. get tired after that. They'll just... <laughs> so. Uh, we'll just have another segment, which will be a substantial one, because you will have read what I've written, and then you will ask me probably a question, because you won't <laughs> agree with a lot of what I have to say. <laughs> I Very well. No, you won't. Wait. Uh, I'm having a lot of major arguments with people, including my publisher, who does not like what I'm saying. Uh, I, I, I don't think I'm getting conservative. On the other hand, um, I'm happy to I'm happy to go where the facts take me, and uh, I have discussions on abortion, transgenders, intersectionality, um, reparations, and I suspect you aren't going to like what I have to say. <laughs> Those are I look, I look forward, forward to, to reading it. Yeah. Yeah. Those are not light topics. <laughs> right now, I was only going to suspend our interview because one of my friends just wrote me attacking me again on one of these issues. And I immediately wanted to answer her. I was getting so angry. But I said, okay, okay, I'll hold oh. on. Oh, Sounds like me on Twitter.
All right. So that was fun. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely. Like Norm's, Norm has always been a bit of a hero of mine. Like, and I can relate to the idea of like arguing with a lot of people. I mean, last girl I was seeing, she pretty much like, she explicitly said the reason she's bumping me is because I spend too much time arguing with weirdos on Twitter. You're but a true fair, man of online. But what she doesn't understand is those people are really wrong and I need to let them know as much. <laughs> yeah, I always see you fighting with people with like 30 followers and it'll be some no, no, guy no, no. with like a India flag in his profile. Well, yeah. no, that's, that's their fault. Like if they weren't simping so hard for the IDF, like I, <laughs> I wouldn't have to get involved. But like some of those trolls are getting weird like they, they, uh... no like the other day some indie like i still can't get over this it's been two weeks and i still can't get over this some indian dude a modi guy like for those who don't know modi's the leader of the hindu nationalists very hardcore and he called we were disagreeing about something and he called me a soy boy <laughs> and i was like you're hindu a hindu <laughs> nationalist and you're making fun of someone else for choosing non non animal based alternative substitutes. Like yeah, I, I mean, they're, I, they're, I can they're, eat a cheeseburger. I mean, to be fair, I kind of admire their dietary uh, discipline, but yeah, but, man, yeah. chickpeas make you strong. They do. No, like I, I have, no, that's the thing. That's the thing. Like I fully support the vegan vegetarian lifestyle. I have all <laughs> the admiration in the world for those people because the way we currently consume meat is one, tremendously unsustainable, and two, bad for the environment, and three, very hard and like just cruel to animals. Like I'm pretty sure in the future people are going to be mad at us for the just like the what we do with like for example baby chicks to make chicken nuggets. But it was just weird to me like. He was Hindu. Like, why would you use, like, you could call, you could insult me in any way, but like, <laughs> boy, boy, like, you think you'd want, you think with your ideology, you would try to encourage people consuming more soy and less yeah. meat. That's true. That's true. That is true. Yeah. And uh, usually they get mo get mad at Muslims for, uh, for beef. They, they, they pogrom them. They pogrom them every once oh. in a while. Some poor bastard in India eats a eats like a McDouble or something to burn down the village. Oh man! So I've just resorted to replying with pictures of burgers whenever they get me mad. Oh no! But, yeah, that's. Oh, you guys, my city's under <laughs> apocalypse right now. So. Yeah, Vancouver's not looking so hot. Yeah, lots of moths and smoke. Really? I I wonder if we can sue California for this because like we can't go for runs outside now which is really distressing me um so I feel like I should sue uh California for damages against my well-being I feel like you should sue California for all the cultural products it comes out with <laughs> um not for the red hot chilies but <laughs> I definitely definitely sue them for that that's like the number one thing I would sue them for Oh, yeah. I sue them like for the annoyed. show Californication. Yeah, which oh, no, entourage. basically entourage on the same on the same level entourage. as the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> terrible show, terrible band. Just get that's, it all done. That is that is blasphemous. Um, that's yeah. 
I'm, I'm very upset at this point. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, you know, I've seen some photos of uh, the sort of hellish, uh, or you know, Oregon. Uh, as much as the word literally gets thrown around, literally <laughs> looks like hell. Uh, yeah. The sky is red. Um, and uh, yeah, I was I was basically just waiting for the moment that it, it drifted up to British Columbia. Uh, <laughs> I know some friends were trying to go to the beach uh, today and, uh, you know, we're ha having some second thoughts because just the air you is... You can't go outside at all. Yeah, not breathable. Ugh, millennials. Like you can't even tolerate just a bit of world on fire and the sky is orange. Like, come on. I know, seriously. Back, back in my day, the sky was, I don't know, let's say green. It was very green. <laughs> I mean, in, in, in Lebanon, it's not too far of a stretch. Oh yeah, and Le that, that's, that's like the funny thing. Like I, my, my family called me yesterday from there and they're like, well, the sky was just black. And I was like, I'm not sure if that's a, much of an upgrade over the whole <laughs> red skies thing. Yeah, or like the garbage. Yeah, they're still trying to figure out who was the idiot who started that. But there's like a general rule a lot of people in Lebanon have, which is if you have way too many, Le a Lebanese person individually is very smart. But you get a bunch of them in the same room together or same country together, you're going to have a lot of problems. <laughs> I very much admire like what the Jewish community have. Like I, especially like after the explosion, I really thought like it's we really should like have more of an established network and like relationships between like Lebanese people everywhere, like actual communities. The Maronites have that, but. Yeah, I can't really, neither of us are Maronite. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that about, uh, there being this camaraderie amongst Jews that uh, helps them get through tough times definitely exists. Absolutely. Uh, but you know, uh, when, uh, when Norm brought up, uh, you know, his uh, nephew who is half Chinese, half Jewish, uh, you know, it, it just made me think that, you know, these, uh, these connections, they're not, uh, they're not just sort of, formed with no questions asked it's one of the reasons why i don't really have a big sense of camaraderie with other jews because there's always this looming uh, set of questions about whether you support israel whether you went to the sort of indoctrinating summer camps that all jews in certain parts of north america go to i didn't go to either of them don't really care for well, it you didn't go to any didn't go to any of the sort of big time summer camps not a thing where i grew up so i mean I tried to go to Birthright once in college. <laughs> How did Why? you try? <laughs> Why? Uh, just to, I don't know. Like, I, I purposefully avoided ever mentioning Israel for somewhat obvious reasons. But just, I don't know. Like, it was, I just saw them, like, they had a stand in one of the, like, just they had a stand out there for, like, Birthright. And I was like, Technically, I am from that area. Maybe I can see what happens. But then they like they have to ask like you have to demonstrate Jewish heritage, and I was like, I mean, what if I convert? Oh my god! Didn't go over great. Is conversion yeah, converting isn't common? really a thing uh, yeah, over here. Really I mean, it is a thing, but uh, marry a Jewish woman. Do, do like do what Jeff Tweedy did from Wilco. Marry a Jewish woman, convert to Judaism. 
I would like to marry a Jewish woman. Um, <laughs> They're pretty cute. Wait, so there is no like, uh, no is comment. Laura, is Laura Loomer still single? Uh, well, Isn't nah, she dating Jacob Bull or whatever? I'll oh yeah, the greatest. The great, uh, unfortunately, there are no DMs to slide into anymore. Laura Which, Loomer's thick though, so you know. Oh yeah, she's got the big Ashkenazi brain. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> she called it. She that's that's what she that was her 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 words. Oh, her words. words. Okay. Her it was like there's this viral video of Laura Loomer where she's clearly drunk and she's trying to hit on this straight up neo-Nazi. And But the thing about the thing about that comment uh about the big brain Ashkenazi is that it rings true across the political spectrum because we just heard from you know Norman Finkelstein himself uh that you know Jews are smart so or at least we think we're smarter than others so uh there's I think some, I'm pretty smart <laughs> there's some real there's some real there's a political coalition to be formed there I I can I can sense this oh, oh, oh my god yeah there's a uh, well Lebanese people have Shakira and, yeah. and Feruz. <laughs> there's, there's a few. We have a few. Oh, and of course, Peter Dow. Of course, the king. Well, how could well you the truth, the ultimate truth sayer. How, yeah. how could you forget the greatest Lebanese icon of all time? Like, I've, I've gotten questions. Like, there was one time I got a question straight up at a party. Like, after some person met me and, like, he asked, like where I'm from, and I said my family's from Lebanon, and he was like, "Do you know Nassim Nicolas Taleb?" <laughs> I don't know who that is. I was like, "I know of him." Nassim Taleb. Yeah, but unfortunately, yeah. we're not friends. Oh, Nassim Taleb. Sorry, I just misheard you. Oh yeah. Oh man, the the king, of course. The king. I think I gotta get him on. <laughs> oh no, that'd be awesome. Like, he, he could say whatever he wants. I, I don't know, I know if I can handle that. Literally that measure my skull, Nasim. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> I don't know if I can handle that amount of pure, just like aggression. And like... <laughs> it's. I think it's beautiful. I think he has such a a, a great, majestic mind. I mean, I would, I would like to hear him. I, you know, I've heard him talk shit about Nate Silver, but if we can get the conversation to shift just a little bit towards. Nate Silver's basketball analytics <laughs> and talking shit about those, then I would be very happy to have nothing. Then we're good. We're golden. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we can wrap it. Yeah. Sounds good. We're about an hour. So. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the first up. Stay tuned and uh, be well. That's Thanks. always my saying by thing is just saying be well, but I'm sure there's something better. <laughs> Any last thoughts, Ali? Um, wear a mask. Mm, yeah, keep, yeah. Wearing, the, keep wearing those masks. Yeah. Not, not just to attacked. stop the spread, but also now to breathe properly outdoors. <laughs> yeah. There you go. It's true. Until I sue California. All right, guys, until next week. <laughs>